Talk Recorded live. You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kennedy Jenkins. On today's Creation Moments Minute, we look at how fireflies produce their light. To make a flash, fireflies must make and mix a chemical called luciferin with an oxygen and enzyme called luciferase. This mixture is combined with a catalyst to create the flashes of light. Firefly flashes are used for finding a mate. Fireflies are able to read the light signals of other fireflies. These signals may contain several messages. Some flashes can tell a firefly whether the sender is one of his species. Light flashes are also used to identify whether the sender is a male or a female. And if it's a female, the flash can also identify whether she is already mated with another firefly. This is another example of the unlimited creativity and extravagance of our creator God. The same beauty of the firefly that creates wonder in the child should also fill us with wonder at the limitless imagination of God. For Creation Moments Minute, I'm Darren Martin. At just 21 years old, Roland knew he wanted to own a business. But when he opened a dry goods store in Haverhill, Massachusetts, it failed. Over the next 10 years, Roland opened three more stores and had three more failures. Despite these disappointments, however, he was learning and still trying. Moving to New York, he opened his fifth store, his fifth, and it took. Today, Roland's dry goods store is known as R.H. Macy and Company. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge. And the lesson here is failure, of course, we can all ace (laughs) if we study hard. Mr. Macy reminds us that while stores may close, school stays open in the high calling of our daily work. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
truly crushed by Satan's manifested scheme. And you feel the urge within you to submit to worldly fears. Don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. Take it from the Lord to praise Him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Our God in heaven. Praise the
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. And good morning to you and yours. Good morning to you and yours. This is your early morning gospel program, Morning Inspirations, here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. It's now time for our morning prayer. Let us pray. Dear Father God, we come before you this morning saying thank you. Give us some sense that we thank you. Only I know. Well, we lift up those victims of the theater shooting. The family of the victims of the theater shooting. We lift them up to you as well, Lord. We lift up those, Lord, who are in need. Those, Lord, who don't know you. Pardon their sins. We, we, we lift them up to you as well, Lord. We lift up our men and women armed forces. We lift up our men and women. Police officers. EMTs. Firefighters. Those, Lord, we lift them up to you, Lord. We lift up those who are living on the streets, who are homeless. We lift up those our senior citizens. We lift them up to you as well, Lord. We lift up those, Lord, who need, need you, who need your help, who are desperate need. Lord, we lift up those, Lord, who we don't suicide watch. We lift up those behind prison walls, behind those who are on, on death row. We lift up to you as well, Lord. And we lift up those in the hospital, in hospice, in nursing homes everywhere, Lord. We lift up the caretakers as well, Lord. We take, take care of the patients. We lift up those, Lord, who we lift up our children to you, Lord. We pray that they have a good first day at school this year. We lift up our teachers, those, uh, those principals and school administrators, even, uh, even those who clean to be able to judge and Don't forget the food. Those teachers who are especially counselors. Those who are in security and we lift them up to as well. That's our family, our friends, our church family, our neighbors for us. God protect us, kill us, kill us, bless our pastor, and every pastor, a minister who's given up the world today. We pray that they are preaching clarity, and 
the word that your word would not go would not go void. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be back with more after this. Here's Alistair Beck. God has indeed blessed Truth for Life over the past 20 years, making it possible for this ministry to reach more people around the world through the generous giving of listeners just like you. In fact, we have now outgrown our home. We're building a new, larger facility so that we can continue to expand. To find out how you can partner with us in this exciting project, visit tfl.org future or call 1-888-588-7884 to make a donation. Christians come in all shapes and sizes, but all of us have one thing in common. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg describes some of the practical outcomes of having God's Spirit living in us. Preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Alistair presents a message called, You Are Not Your Own. 1 Corinthians 6, if any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. 
He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Amen. The context of Corinth was not dissimilar to the context of Cleveland insofar as it was a context in which people hung loose to the issues of morality and where fornication and sexual immorality was so much part and parcel of life that it was even creeping into the church of Jesus Christ itself. And so Paul, as a wise and gracious and brave pastor, writes to them in order that they might be reminded of what is true of them and that that itself may serve as an antidote against them going down some very bad and very sad and very debilitating pathways. He apparently, in the quotes here in verse 12, is picking up what was something of a truism in the time, a kind of slogan that was going around. He may even have invented it, I don't know. But you will see that it is used there twice in verse 12. Everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. It would appear that what was happening was that the folks in Corinth were taking this maxim and they were using it as a shield for questionable and wrong practices. They were using it in a completely unqualified sense. It clearly has to be qualified. Everything is not permissible for the Christian. Murder is not permissible. Lies are not permissible. There's a whole litany of things that are not permissible in Christ. And yet they were taking this and they were turning it into a form of a mantra so much so that they were prepared to suggest that in actual fact, somehow or another, this freedom that they discovered in Jesus was a freedom from all restraint. There was really nobody that could tell them what needed to be done or shouldn't be done and that there was really nothing in which they couldn't dabble. After all, wasn't this what Jesus had accomplished for them? And so they were saying in Corinth the kind of things that people say today in, in, in Cleveland. Well, you know, you have food for your stomach and you have fornication for your, for your body. It's, it's a natural thing. It's natural for you to eat food and it's natural for you to engage in sex. And Paul says, no, that's an absolutely wrong way of thinking. The people in Corinth were trying to navigate their way through the murky waters or, if you like, along the striding edge of Christian freedom on either side of which there is great danger. On the one hand, there is the great danger of legalism, whereby people seek to make themselves acceptable to God by keeping rules and remain acceptable to God by their fastidious rule-keeping. On the other side of the narrow striding edge is the pit of license, whereby people were saying the kind of things that is expressed here. Eating is natural, they were saying, and so is fornication. No, says Paul, God didn't design the body for that, He designed the stomach for food, but he designed you for God. And so what he does is he seeks to clear up the misunderstanding, to sort out the abuse, and as he comes to the end of chapter 6, and it is here I really want to go, he gives to the readers the crux of the matter, the foundational premise. And so he says to them, do you not know, verse 19, or have you forgotten? Well, it wasn't that they were missing any information, 
but they were avoiding the application of the information they had received. And he reminds his readers of what is true of them. You, your body is a temple. God lives there. You don't belong to yourself. You were purchased at a great price. And it is on account of those truths that he then tells them what to do. First of all, the picture of the dwelling of God. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? In other words, he's not just addressing people who have become religious, who were previously irreligious, as we've said so many times, but he is addressing those in whom God has come to live by the Holy Spirit. And the promise of Jesus in John 14 is that if a man loves me, he will keep my commandments, and I too will love him, and I will show myself to him. My Father too will love him, and we will come, and we will make our dwelling with him. So the picture of being in Christ and of Christ being in the believer is a picture of intimacy. It is a picture of union. It is the defining fact of the believer's existence. It is our union with Christ which determines who we are and which determines what we do. Now, the dwelling place is uh, described in, earlier in 1 Corinthians as the church in a plural way. And you can just take my word for this. You can go research it if you doubt me. But uh, what he mentions in plural terms in 1 Corinthians 3 is now being addressed in singular terms in 1 Corinthians 6. In other words, back there, the temple is the corporate body, the church. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is the individual body of the believers. And what he's saying is, Christianity has a view of the body. And this view of the body that Christianity has is not like what you will find in the thought forms and philosophies of your friends and neighbors in Corinth. So that in the Greek thought world, the body was regarded as the prison house of the soul. There was a dualism, there was a distinction, there was a dichotomy between the soul and the body. And they regarded the body as being that which trapped the person. So they were trapped in the body. So Epictetus said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. As a result of that, the body was then denigrated and was trivialized. So people said it doesn't really matter what happens to the body. That, in turn, developed two contradictory perspectives. Either severe asceticism, whereby people abuse their bodies to try and bring them into subjection, hair, shirts, beds of nails, uh, sitting on the top of a pillar uh, for as long as you possibly can without ever coming down, a la Simon Stylites, who's a famous figure of the early church, the denigration of the body in asceticism or in brutism, okay? So you either despise it entirely or you indulge it completely. And that is exactly what was happening in the community there. The indulging of physical appetites and passions. The idea was, of course, that in each instance, the body had no moral significance. And what you did with your body didn't affect your soul. That was the crux of it. So you could go and do things with your body, but your body wasn't your soul, and your soul was the thing that mattered. And Paul writes to them, and he says, fellas, girls, you better get this clear, that although that is part and parcel of contemporary philosophy, that is not biblical theology. No. 
Your body, he says, is actually the temple of God himself. In writing to the Romans, remember, he says to them, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And it is this fact which is the foundation of all the rest of his argument. It is this which allows him to say all the surrounding things that he says, which we're not going to consider this evening. For those of you who may be interested by this, there are two Greek words for temple. One is the word hieron, H-I-E-R-O-N, to uh, anglicize it, and the other is naos, which is N-A-O-S, again, to give it to you in English. Hieron is the word for temple that would describe the totality of the temple, its precincts, its outer courts, uh, just the whole shooting match. And naos is the word which is used for the inner sanctuary, for the holy of holies, for the place where the very presence of God dwells. And when he takes up the picture, you will not be surprised when I tell you that he uses the second of the two pictures. In other words, he doesn't just say you're the general precinct where God has an abode, but you are the very epicenter where he, in his might and in his holiness, makes his dwelling. Thereby reminding the Christian of the immense dignity that is ours in Jesus and reminding the believer of the incongruity of, of the kind of behavior he has just been described. He's obviously not saying that it is impossible for these people to do these things, but he is pointing out that it is incongruous for them to do. And that then brings the second picture, which is the picture of the slave market. Don't you know that your body, or have you forgotten that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And by the way, don't you realize that you're not your own? You were bought at a price. Now, is this not quite countercultural? It was in Corinth, and it certainly is in 21st century Cleveland. Immediately unacceptable. What does he say? You are not the owner of your own body. That's what he says. You don't own your own body. That has been the great cry for the last 25 or 30 years here in the women's movement in America, hasn't it? I own my own body. I can do what I want with my body. Nobody has a right to tell me what happens to my body. Paul says, yes, yes, someone does. The one who made you, and the one who redeemed you, and the one who indwells you. You do not belong to yourself. This is like a stud missile coming crashing in to contemporary views. Now, the reason that Paul argues in this way is straightforward. This is theology at work. This is theology with jeans on, if you like. This is theology wearing tennis shoes. This is theology for the high street. Theology for a Friday night. You're not your own. Why? But you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. I'm not going to belabor all of this, but the Old Testament is full of this notion of redemption by the payment of a price. It was common as a foundational principle in the social and religious life of Israel. You can read about it all the way through the Old Testament, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and so on. And even in secular Greek, in the New Testament period, the words for redemption that are used in the Bible are also understandable in the context of their day with the idea of the paying of a ransom price. And in Greek thought, it was usually in reference to prisoners of war, or to slaves. And the most important Old New Testament passages stress the price paid 
for the deliverance of the believer. Matthew 20, 28, that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And 1 Peter 1, he didn't do this with perishable things like silver or gold. Now, loved ones, uh, this is familiar territory to walk down, but it is important for us to have it at our fingertips. We're going back out into the world tomorrow and to the, uh, the conversations that inevitably ensue. What are we going to say? Are we just going to mumble and bumble? Or are we going to actually be able to tell people a little of this wonderful news? Because we need to understand the whole nature of redemption is posited, first of all, on the fact that man in his original state was sinless and free and lived in fellowship with God. When God made Adam and Eve, they were sinless and free and communed with God. It was in the purity of that that marriage was instituted. It was in the context of that monogamous, free relationship that all of the enjoyment of human physicality and human sexuality was to be entered into. And God made it and designed it and there's nothing wrong with it and there's everything good in it. So we're able to speak in the highest terms about the nature of these things. But we also have to be honest enough to say that the Bible goes on to point out that man, men and women, turned their backs on God. And as a result of that, they and we are guilty and we need a Savior. And our guilt is so great and our condition is so awful that no one else but God can save us. Because we're slaves. We're enslaved until we've been redeemed. There are three ways that you could be enslaved in the ancient world. One, you could be born as a slave. Two, you could fall into it through conquest. Or three, as a result of debt. That is exactly what the Bible says about our condition. It says we were born into it. We're in it as a result of being conquered by our own sinful passions and desires. And we're also in debt. We're in debt to God. And the debt is so great that there is no possibility, even given six lifetimes, of us ever being able to buy our redemption. That's why the heart of the matter that Paul is drawing uh, his uh, reader's attention to here is so crucial. Fallen into sin, into slavery through sin, we're held in it, but Christ has purchased our freedom from sin by his blood. He has paid this price in order that we might be set free. And since we have been set free, the freedom that comes in Christ through the gospel only exists under Christ's lordship. In other words, you can't believe what you want. And you can't behave as you like. Why? Because the freedom into which you have been brought by the purchase of Christ's blood is not a freedom to sin at will, but is the freedom to say no to sin by the power of Christ. Therefore, when I say that Jesus is Lord, it means I have no right to believe anything other than what my Lord teaches me. Therefore, I can't redefine my view of marriage I can't redefine my view of sexuality. 
I can't redefine the parameters of morality because Jesus is Lord. Therefore, all of my believing and all of my behaving underneath his lordship is the freedom into which we have been brought. So let me summarize it in this way. Paul says, Have you forgotten that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Remember, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We belong to God. Let us therefore live for him, die for him. We belong to God. Therefore, let his wisdom and his will rule all our actions. We belong to God. Therefore, let all the parts of our life accordingly strive towards pleasing him, our supreme God. I think the issues in terms of morality that are before us in these days are in danger of suffering from the believer's response in one of two ways. Either in taking the low road which says, you know, we're all sinners and who cares? Or taking a high road which says there's nothing worse than this. Therefore, those who have engaged in these things are beyond the pale. Both approaches are wrong. The approach that is right is the approach that is here in all of its bold honesty. Don't let's kid ourselves. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do all these things and go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. You shouldn't be deceived because the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy people, drunks, slanderers, swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then some of the best words, one of the best sentences in the whole of the New Testament, and that is what some of you were. That's what some of you were. That's where you were, not where you are. Why? Because where you are now is the dwelling place of God. You were purchased at a great price. You are united with Christ. He has taken your past and he has buried it in the deepest sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he placed your transgressions from you so that you may now live in the freedom that comes from the indwelling power of the Spirit under the Lordship of Christ. Therefore, it is incongruous. It is ridiculous for those who are the dwelling place of God to fiddle and fiddle around way that our unbelieving friends have chosen to do. These are great days. Dark days, but great days. Days of wonderful opportunity. May our hearts be turned afresh to him in believing faith and in genuine grace. Apostle Paul made it clear to first century believers, you are not your own.
our topic today on Truth for Life with Alistair Begg. We're so grateful to have this platform available to proclaim the truth of God's Word. This countercultural message Paul delivered in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a message that needs to be heard in our day. We're living in a generation of entitlement where many people believe that self gratification is their personal right. Not our role as believers to point the finger of shame. But as we present truth for life, we can lead others to the one who truly satisfies. As a ministry, we find ourselves in partnership with people like you, people who want these daily programs to reach an ever-growing audience. We call these folks truth partners, and we'd love to have you join us so that more people can hear the clear and relevant Bible teaching you hear on this program. A truth partner agrees to give a donation each month Becoming a Truth Partner is easy. You can call 888-588-7884, or you can go online right now at truthforlife.org slash truthpartner. I'm Bob Lapine. Tomorrow, Alistair Begg introduces a series about the letters found in the book of Revelation, letters written to seven churches. The series is called You've Got Mail. Listen Thursday to Truth For Life. One of my passions is bass fishing. I'll drop almost anything for an opportunity to spend some time on a lake or a pond fishing. Hi, this is Tony Agnesi. I find that fishing not only relaxes me, but teaches me patience as well. One of my core sins is a lack of patience. Sometimes when I'm fishing alone, I think of the apostles and why Jesus chose so many fishermen to evangelize and why he has chosen me to do the same. Well, finally, I got it. I realized that Jesus picked fishermen because fishing for fish and fishing for men requires some of the same skills and techniques. To be good at fishing, you've got to know the habitat, the depth of the water, and the type of fish you're going to catch. It takes patience and perseverance. Here are a few of the rules of fishing that can be applied to evangelization. Number one, it's how you wiggle the bait. Some days you have to fish very slowly, jiggling the bait off the bottom and letting it drift back down. Other times you have to fish quickly, and every fisherman has his favorite retrieval style, like two twitches and a count of three, or three straight twitches and a count of five, and so on. Sometimes when we're talking to someone about Jesus and our faith, we have to go slowly. Other times we can present information much more quickly. Sometimes our retrieval techniques require some information or a question. And then a pause before we continue for a response or an answer. Number two, if the fish aren't biting, you need to change your presentation or change your bait. Oftentimes a bass fisherman will fish with several different colors before he finds one that the fish will hit. Other times it requires switching from hard baits to plastics to spinners and back again just before the right one is discovered. Well, the same thing is true for evangelizing. Sometimes we have to switch our discussion from the Bible to the sacraments to the real presence and back again before we discover a person's interest. Third, the bigger the bait, the bigger the fish isn't always true. Some of the biggest bass I've ever caught have come on smaller baits. Sometimes subtle works better than a two-by-four to the head. Oftentimes, following a men's conference, the attendees will remember one line, one suggestion, one motivation or one thought chosen from among the entire day's worth of material. 
Number four, if the fish are biting on one bait, well, fish that bait until they quit responding. One of the joys of fishing is finding just the right bait that will work consistently all day. Fishermen are taught not to switch baits until they quit working. Sometimes a certain bait will work for a few minutes. Other times the bait will work all day. I have begun many a day's fishing with the simple four-inch scoundrel natural worm and fished all day. In evangelization, if an approach is working or has worked for you in the past, stay there. Start there. It may work for you time and time again. But be careful. It might quit working just as fast. Number five, the barometer and the moon phases will affect whether fish are going to bite at all. You know, there are just some days that the dropping barometer reading or the bad phase of the moon will affect anything. You can drop the juiciest worm right in their face and they'll ignore it. Fishermen are trained to understand that when this happens, it's probably a good idea to just go home. The same is true for evangelization. Some days, the person you're trying to reach just isn't in the mood. Nothing that you say or do will work on him that day. As with fishermen, it is probably best to drop the subject and save your discussion for another day. It might be better to delay your discussion than to turn the person off so that they'll never have any discussion with you about faith in the future. So whether it's fishing for fish or fishing for men, the rules are the same. Isn't it great that our Lord not only understood this, but chose his apostles by these traits? Now, I've heard many people speculate as to why Jesus didn't choose educated men to be his first followers. Why these fishermen, they would ask? Well, now you know. This is Tony Agnesi. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kennedy Jenkins.
little morning inspiration? Well, listen to Morning Inspiration and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. This is the early morning gospel program. One is precious here on TalkShoe and Jam Radio. Bringing the very best in gospel inspiration and music early on a Sunday morning. Time to wake up, everybody.
you are holy, God of the heavens, almighty, Lord of creation, you have power, the universe displays, all things fade away.
Dusty Hour. For the very best, bring you the very best of gospel inspirational music early in the morning. This is Morning Inspirations. Don't forget, tonight at 8 p.m., it's Nation Talk. Right here on Talk to You and Jam Radio. From variety of subjects for your interest. Right now, here's Jeremy Camp. I know you call him.
Hear me, Tamp, and know you're calling. Good morning to you and yours. Howdy to to Texas, to my caller from Texas. Howdy to you. I know it's early, early, early in the morning <laughs> for you over there. Our morning just got started over here, and I just want to say howdy and good morning to you. And welcome to your early morning gospel program, Morning Inspirations. We got more coming your way right after we do this. The following is a presentation of God Questions Ministries. Is Jesus God? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Jesus is never recorded in the Bible as saying the precise words, I am God. That does not mean, however, that he did not proclaim that he is God. Take, for example, Jesus' words in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We need only to look at the Jews' reaction to his statement to know that he was claiming to be God. They tried to stone him for this very reason. You, a mere man, claim to be God, verse 33. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming, deity. Notice that Jesus does not deny his claim to be God. When Jesus declared, I and the Father are one, he was saying that he and the Father are of one nature in essence. John 8, verse 58 is another example. Jesus declared, I will tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. The response of the Jews who heard this statement was to take up stones to kill him for blasphemy, as the Mosaic Law commanded them to do, Leviticus 24, verse 15. John reiterates the concept of Jesus' deity. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh, John 1, verses 1 and 4. These verses clearly indicate that Jesus is God in the flesh. Acts 20, verse 28 tells us, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, who bought the church, the church of God, with his own blood, Jesus Christ? This verse declares that God purchased his church with his own blood. Therefore, Jesus is God. Thomas, the disciple, declared concerning Jesus, My Lord and my God, John 20, verse 28. Jesus does not correct him. Titus 2, verse 13 encourages us to wait for the coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, the Father declares of Jesus, but about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. The Father refers to Jesus as, O God, indicating that Jesus is indeed God. In Revelation, an angel instructed the Apostle John to only worship God, Revelation 19, verse 10. Several times in Scripture, Jesus receives worship, Matthew 2, verse 11, Matthew 28, verse 9, for example. He never rebukes people for worshiping him. If Jesus were not God, he would have told people to not worship him, just as the angel in Revelation did. There are many other verses and passages of Scripture that argue for Jesus' deity. The most important reason that Jesus has to be God is that if he is not God, his death would not have been sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. A created being, which Jesus would be if he were not God, could not pay the infinite penalty required for sin against an infinite God. Only God could pay such an infinite penalty. Only God could take on the sins of the world, die, and be resurrected, proving his victory over sin and death. God Questions Ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by providing biblical answers to today's questions. Online at gotquestions.org. 
It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. Studies prove that reading to a child regularly dramatically improves reading skills. And kids who read well by third grade are four times as likely to graduate. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Communities improve. The path to success starts long before graduation day. And the difference between a graduate and a dropout could be you. Be a reader, tutor or mentor. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org now. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. This is Ann Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. If you want to experience God, you must choose Him at all costs. You must be willing to do as Peter did in Matthew 14. Step out of the boat. Risk total failure in the eyes of others. Discover firsthand His power enabling you to walk on the water when Jesus bids you come. Again and again I've been confronted with hard choices when I've had to throw caution to the wind and abandon myself to faith in Him and Him alone. When I step into a pulpit, when I begin to write, when I commit this ministry to much more than we have resources to underwrite, whenever I choose to step out in obedient faith and trust him, I'm actually choosing to take him at his word. Listen to me. Put him to the test. Obey whatever he says. Do it. The result will be the thrilling adventure we call the Christian life. This is Anne Graham Lodge. Hey, churchgoers. Looking for the little morning inspiration? Well, listen to Morning Inspirations and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Goers, looking for the little morning inspiration? Well, listen to Morning Inspirations and the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
It's my sin that puts you on that cross. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him, come to the Saviour tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself truly to him. And you too will enter into that joy of sin forgiven, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
for Nation Talk. Thanks to everyone for listening, tuning in, downloading us. Hope you're getting ready for church because I know we are and we'll see you in church and we'll see you tonight on Nation Talk. God bless you. Have a wonderful, blessed Sunday.